Let's party, let's rock Coming soon to the cinema Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only get cool perks, you may get this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim. I just saw you like two days ago, but what are we talking about today? Yeah, it's we got the podcasting bug. We're fucking back, baby. This episode is, well, it's going to be, essentially going to be, it's going to be talking about what's coming up in the void in February, the lineup at the Lost Fields 3, but we, last time we were recording, we noticed some things that we started talking about, and it's like, hey, it's film-related. We do a film-related podcast, sort of, maybe. I guess we kind of talk about films. I thought there was some value in discussing it. So there, there was a couple things we saw on Twitter, you know, that cesspool of website that everyone thought was going to disappear and everyone was like, see you later. And then no one fucking left. Yeah. That, it, that, that was actually really funny. Yes. It's come on now. No, none of no one. Well, some people left, but not really. There was two things we saw. And one was about a screening of vertigo and how the audience just kind of laughed through it. Yeah. And, you know, people being pissed and like being angry and like, you know, I, here's the, here's the thing. And I hate to break it to people because I've been going to rep cinema for like, fuck, I don't even know, like 20 plus years at this point. People have always laughed at inappropriate things. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. It's like, actually I'll even go further. When I was in film school, we watched certain movies, certain people laughed. I think that uh, some of these tweets that you're talking about in particular, or just a, a complaint a lot of times, ends up being a little, little ageist. Yeah. Um, I, I think that a lot of times it is, though. It's it's younger audience, especially if we're looking at something like Vertigo, specifically in, in modern times. You're pro- I, I just automatically assume that you're talking about like, oh, it's a bunch of teenagers or kids in their 20s. I think what's happening now is that it's a new wave of watching movies ironically. This has been a complaint that I've seen for fucking decades now. And it pops up here and there, but it just seemed like there's a lot of it popping up. And I guess... It's always been a thing, but uh, it was definitely different. You know, you can... I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a good example that... I mean, when we're watching fucking Meatballs 2, it's like, well, we know it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, we're watching it because it's fucking ridiculous. We're not... We're certainly not watching Vertigo because it's ridiculous. But there's a section of human beings. I can't accept that. Well, there there <laughs> clearly is. It, I think the problem is is that like now a lot of like the kind of standard like very hard line like 
things that people who get in the film and watch film always stood by, like, you know, Vertigo is a Stone Cold classic or mm-hmm. whatever. Because it was like, I think it was the AFI or Sight and Sound. It was like a number, it was listed as the number one movie for good years. It like dethroned Citizen Kane and shit. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of things have happened last year. It's like, you know, culturally things have changed. Opinion of Hitchcock as a person, not a filmmaker, as a person has changed. Uh, and of of course, my my opinion is that that has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't, you know. But for this particular audience, and like, I don't want to speak. This is more of me just theoretically trying to understand humans and why humans react the way they do. Mm-hmm. It's like we were kind of, you know, before we record this, we we're talking like, you know, there's a certain segment of people who think Vertigo is just a bad movie, and. The only reason they think of a bad movie is because, like, they look at all the personal shit with Hitchcock, and they anything that's I, like. I mean, I I would go as far as to say that a lot of the people that, that would say Vertigo is a bad movie didn't pay close enough attention, and by the time it got to the end of it, they they were confused. I think that that's that was a large majority of the. I don't think it's people digging into like Hitchcock's personal life. I mean, this is and again, this is just me speaking. Maybe I'm wrong. I didn't realize that there was such a giant backlash against Hitchcock. Maybe there is. I mean, well, you know, I'm sure he's got some skeletons in his closet. There's been a couple of things. There's like the whole Tippy Hedron thing and the birds and like their relationship, how they treated or how he treated her and stuff like that. Throwing and like, birds at her. Yeah. Throwing birds at her. And like, it's the same with the Kubrick, Shelley Duvall stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and Dario Argento throwing birds cats. at well, cats, or cats at, rather. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't got, they haven't gone for Dario yet over this, yeah. but like, um, but it's, it's things like that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just like the thing we talked about last episode when we were talking about deep red and tenebrae and like people like, I don't understand a plot. It's confusing. It's no, you're just not fucking paying mm-hmm. attention. So or, I, I think that's definitely what's going on with vertigo in particular is that, you know, I'm, I, I think that it goes over a lot of people's heads and then uh, between that and then it just uh, something being from, you know, if you haven't seen a lot of old films and then you just go, all right, well, I'm going to watch Vertigo because it's supposed to be a classic and you're not used to the pacing of an old film, things like that. I, that's why you're going to get low ratings on a on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever the fuck. Well, it's not right. It's, it's letterbox reviews is what yeah. it is. It's just like because I can go, you can go on there and like, you know, things that like make Vertigo Vertigo people don't like. It's like Jimmy Stewart's character is a fucking creep. He's clearly recreating a woman into the vision of the woman that he loves. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that shit. And like, you know, under the lens of 2023, some people are going to have a problem with it. And I think like what you said about people not paying attention is one thing. I also think people don't care to engage with art as it is. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing. Like when I watch a movie, depending on what time period it, came, it was made, I engage with it differently. I'm not going to like put the standards of a fucking 1970s movie on a Charlie Chaplin film or a Buster Keaton film because that's fucking ludicrous. Like completely different environments, completely different ways of making movies. And while I might not like, I might not be the biggest silent film head or whatever, but like I can appreciate and you can see like, wow, there's some fucking techniques that are done in these movies that still are done now. Same like watching like Battleship of Temkin and you get to the Odessa step sequence and that montage. That's still fucking incredible. And they still use that technique to this fucking day. But I think a lot of people, when they look at film, it's like, it's, I, I think it's just, I think it's a lot of streaming culture. 
and it's access, and it's like, I think a lot of studios have done a disservice to their back catalog. Maybe not the Criterion channel, and maybe, like, things like that, or, um, what's the fucking library one that everyone uses, um... Canopy? Canopy, there you go. Because there's options of, like, you know, more classic films. Mm-hmm. Like, shit like is it, that. Is, it, is that just, uh, is that just, you know, the marketplace? I mean, it might be the marketplace, but it's also a choice, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, TCM. So there's just no demand for it, so they just, I mean, that's what is, that's just how the studios operate, right? It's it's about the money. They don't care about the culture of it at all. But they, but they should. I, mean, I, don't, I don't, I mean, you know, of course they do. I, I think they do, but the you know it just you look at the things that are coming out today i think there's a lot of factors that go into it and i also just think like you know you know when i was in film school people had a cutoff date of what they want to watch film wise and mm-hmm. when i was in film school people didn't want to go past 1990 i mean i have huge blind spots for you know i i don't know much before like definitely the 50s yeah I, I don't know much from the 50s i'm not a big noir guy like i i and i should go back to some of that absolutely yeah i i'm definitely not a silent movie guy i've seen very few things before say 1950 i'll put it that way yeah um i don't know i need to change that but the difference is you acknowledge you have blind spots but you're willing to engage with it where people have when they have run across a blind spot they're just watching it and like they're watching with the 2023 lens yeah and that is it. Here's the best example. It's going to see some Picasso art, but expecting to get a Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. It's like there's nothing wrong with either thing. They're two different styles. They're two different ways of art. But you cannot look at a Picasso and expect to put the Mona Lisa aesthetic or expect that from it. Right. But people, that's what everyone wants fucking McDonald's. That's all it is. And then it's like... You know, I'm going to say this. People will laugh at, like, I think the scene that people were complaining online they're laughing at was the scene where Jimmy Stewart's character is like, oh, and, you know, he's having vertigo and, like, like that shot. And, like, he, I guess they found it weird and laughable. But it's like, I'll say this. The worst fucking visual effect in Vertigo is still better than any fucking effect in a Marvel movie. Yeah, like, that that scene in particular you're talking about, it's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's... And it's, and it's a it's a great representation of exactly what that feels like too. Like that startling, Holy shit. I'm up to way too high. Yeah. And it kind of, but people just like, just want to laugh at it Cause it's like, Oh, it seems antique or whatever, but it's like also a lot of people like that are like laughing at stuff. Haven't really lived life either. Yeah. Like if you, you know, a lot of people are These um, damn young people. <laughs> it's not young. I mean, there's, there's been people like this for years. Yeah. There's been people like this. It's just, it's more prevalent because like, for whatever reason, people just don't choose to fucking engage with stuff. Mm-hmm. People like only will go see things that they heard they should see. And then when it doesn't meet this expectation, that's the other thing. It's like expectations might be too high for a lot of stuff now. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, when I was in film school, all you ever heard is Citizen Kane's the greatest fucking movie ever. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic movie, but in the same time, when I start seeing other Orson Welles movies, it's one I don't really revisit because I feel like when he had less money and he was working through chaos and he's like dubbing 15 different voices in this movie because he has to, I think Orson Welles made more interesting stuff after Citizen Kane. Yeah. Because Citizen Kane was the, you know, it was the movie he had everything. He had fucking Greg Tolan, one of the great DPs as a DP. He had Robert Wise as his fucking editor. You know, Bernard Herman did the goddamn score. It's like he had everything. It's like you can't fuck that up. 
Literally, you cannot fuck that up. So it's more, I'm just more interested in what he did after that when, like, he didn't have, like, the all-star team working with him. You know what I mean? But, you know, you someone watches Citizen Kane, they're going to look at it like, oh, I don't like this because of fucking some, something that doesn't jive with a 2023 lens. And I think that's the other thing. And it just, I just hate to say it, it's just, like, rep audience have kind of always been that way. And another thing we saw, and I think this was more recent, well, they're both recent, but like more recent than the other thing is like, I think there was a screening of Lady Snowblood and a bunch of the audience were openly laughing during a rape scene. Yeah. And there's two schools of thought on this. And I think we can talk about both. One is that there's just people who are just fucking assholes. Yeah. And they're just fucking assholes. And two, people laugh when they're uncomfortable because they don't know how to engage with art. Absolutely. I've been I've been waiting for a uh I've been waiting for a screening of Irreversible. I haven't ever seen it on the screen, you know. Um but yeah, I I don't know what that feeling is going to be like seeing that in the theater with other people and having to go through that rape that rape scene in particular and how everyone reacts to that. You know, it's very uncomfortable. Um so yeah, it's it's it, that laughter can even be uh, kind of uncon, you know, you can't control yourself. You're just so, you know, it feels so crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's. I remember seeing it irreversible first run. It's like not a disrespectful laugh. It's a, a fuck, yeah. holy fuck, you know, because they just people don't know what to do. Like mm-hmm. when I saw irreversible, no one was fucking laughing. Half the audience left even before the rape scene during the when they're in the fucking club, right? Like the fire extinguisher. Yeah, like well. The people were fucking filing out even before the fire extinguisher, like head bash thing. Mm-hmm. Like it was clearing fucking house, and that's a powerful movie. But then, like you know, there's people now though, like something as transgressive like as Cannibal Holocaust, people will laugh at. Yeah, they'll laugh at the fucking animal cruelty and all that. And it's like you know, people are assholes and people think they're better than movies and stuff like that. And pe- or. Actually, it could be both. People think they're better than the movie, and they're also uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing. It's like, you know, even a movie I don't like, I can at least respect because it's hard to make a movie. And, like, I'm not trying to... I'm not giving a movie pass because it was, you know, movies... Making movies is hard. Like, right. Like I, I hate plenty of movies, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's like, but a lot. Even the 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 thing, the movie you hate the most, people really worked really hard on that. Exactly, <laughs> and that's the other thing. It's just like you know, I. That's why I kind of take when you know I try to. I know I don't know. I'll fucking say I hate something. But also talking shit is fun. Yeah, talking shit's fun. But like, talking shit fun is fun after you've seen the movie and you're talking to your friends, not kind of talking shit or like laughing through it as you're watching it. Indeed. Indeed. And if it's something I know I don't like, I don't fucking engage with it because like, I know what my taste is. I'm fucking old. Like I'm willing to try new things, but also at the same time, I know what I don't like. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to go see to a rep screening of a musical. I'm not a musical guy. Yeah. I also don't like a lot of sci-fi stuff. So I'm not going to actively go to screenings for that. Cause like, why am I going to go, subject myself to something that isn't for me. But people, you know, the other thing is like, it's weird. We have the internet, which will tell you everything you need to know. Not always correctly, but enough. Mm-hmm. And people come in just based on like a blog or a fucking letterbox review and stuff like that. And it's just like, 
I love Letterboxd. I know you do too. But sometimes I look at reviews people write and you're just like, I just want to fucking slap them. Yeah. Hey, I uh, just occurred to me, is there maybe something I'm not aware of? Are there any, is there like a, a something like in this particular era? Like, is there a film, you know, aside from the, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture, like stuff where people go to participate, like The Room, there's stuff like that. But is there anything that's like not actually a bad movie that people have turned into its reputation of being a bad movie where they actively go to the screenings and laugh at it? Like it's a activity that people go do. Is there anything like that? Is it, is it to that, uh, you know, extreme of a degree? Or is it just a little more like you just hear people laughing at something they sh- fucking shouldn't be? I mean, there's a lot of stuff like, you know, I don't want to call it Outfest, but there's Anti-Main. Mm-hmm. And app Anti-Main is very over the top. And, like, it's been, you know, adapted into, like, you know, gay culture and, like, the way, like, as a kind of a celebration. That's why they show it every Christmas. However, when Outfest does screenings of other films, a lot of people come in expecting Anti-Main, and they put that expectation on it. Gosh. Again, not trying to call them out, but, like, they did a screening of The Hunger back in October, and I saw some complaints online about people laughing during the hunger of all fucking things Mm -hmm. like it laughing at it like it's rocky horror like trying to like make it that and i'm gonna say it just depends on the crowd's expectations and what they're kind of accustomed to because like i showed the hunger back in february and i got like all the fucking goths who Mm -hmm. were like really in the Bauhaus and like had always wanted to see that movie and like the tony scott fucking heads and that kind of stuff so it also depends on how you present a movie. I'm reminded back in the day uh, of us going to <laughs> family screenings <laughs> and and them like actively uh, passing beers down the aisle and stuff like that. And I can't. I think those were maybe some midnight screenings and stuff like that. I can't remember what they were in particular, but it was kind of encouraging, like a rowdy, you know, a, a rowdier screening and kind of a. Let's make this a party atmosphere, which which is also contributes to that. I mean, that's what that is when it's we're yelling at the screen and and laugh and I mean laughing at bullshit and whatever too. I don't know, just just throwing it out there that I feel like I've been to screenings where it's been you but, know, but it wasn't straight up like, hey, we're all here to clown this either. Yeah. Like it was, you know, it was some gray area there. It you know sometimes like you know I show a lot of exploitation and horror and stuff and like you know. They're audience movies, so the yeah. audience is supposed to fucking laugh and have a good time. And, like, yeah, not everything is going to... Like, Cobra I, is also funny. Yeah, Cobra is also funny. Like, like, shit that's over the top is... I mean, that is funny. So that's also something to mention, though, is, like, we're not even saying, like, don't... I don't know. We're not saying anything. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not personally telling anyone how to... Well, uh, that, that, that's, how to that's the other thing. It's, behave like... Behave or how to, how to take in art. That, you know, necessarily. I'm just commenting on it. I'm yeah. not telling. You can you can approach art however you fucking want, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah, th- this this is more of like a social dissection because I feel like as bad as audiences who refuse to engage with the movie how it should be and just want to like feel like they're above the movie, I think that sucks. You can't really control how other people react. Well, actually, you can. You can in your intro. You can curate your audience. Mm-hmm. The other standoff is if you just refu- if you're like I'm not going to go to rep screenings anymore because yeah. like the audience is like that. The audience isn't always like that, right? You just maybe need to find a different rep screening, someone that just a you know a different organization. Well, it's not even organization. You know, it's, it's like you say, a it's screen- people, you know, you do one thing, someone else does a completely different thing. Well, you know, 
beyond fest are throwing cakes at people. Yeah. And well, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, the way a, a screening is curated, how it's inter- intro, like all that stuff goes into how the audience it, it experiences it, you know, straight up. Like there's probably if you had a vertigo screening and you had a fucking guy lecturing or a woman lecturing, just talking about like the nuance and like, you know, like all the fucking crazy things that are actually in vertigo and like the neuroses and like the, you know, Hitchcock's fetishes and shit like that. If you had someone give context, it plays different. Absolutely. You know, it's just that's the thing. It's like you because when I set up a show, it's like it's cinematic void. It's supposed to be fun, even but not always. Like I, I think back when I showed Hour of the Wolf, and I just want the audience to actually engage with the film, mm-hmm. because I was afraid, and they end up doing it this way. They just fucking sat on hands, dead silent, like mm-hmm. they were sitting at home watching it on the fucking Criterion Channel. Yeah. When you're not like, you're not paying attention. You're not looking at the humor. You're not looking at the horror. You're not like you're just fucking watching something. It's just like going in your eyes, and it's not really registering in your brain, and that sucks too. And it's like, you know, I I don't want to be like, woo, party, hour of the wolf kind of shit. I just want people to like, you can laugh when it's fucking funny. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can get well, repulsed when it's horrifying, you know? Yeah. I, well, there you go. That's also, we're, we're talking about people laughing at inappropriate points in films. But also, as I had mentioned in the last episode, watching Deep Red, you know, they get into uh, the car and all this ridiculous shit happens. And upon, on my first watch, I didn't realize that that was intended to be funny and that that was like a comedic moment. So it's just the exact opposite of what we're saying here. Yeah. And, but but also during Hour of Wolf, that same sort of thing did occur. Yeah. Where just people didn't get that it's funny. And beca- um, because people have certain standards. Like when people think Ingmar Bergman. Well, when it's just, yeah, when it's just. They a, think it's a fucking serious art film. Like, you know, I, I personally also would not have expected jokes. Oh, there's not there, at all. There's so. fuck, there's all kinds of funny, like little one liners in it mm-hmm. and just observations. And it's just like, it's not humorless. Like yeah. most, most movies have jokes in them. But, and that's, the, and that's just something that I think that I, I was taught in that last instance. There is just from now looking forward, not just Argento films. I mean, just across the board, like I need to keep my eyes open a little more and realize that, you know, and, and sometimes the jokes are from another culture, things yeah. like that. So you got to keep your eyes open in a different way to to accept them, to to laugh, fucking laugh at them. I mean, to the, get it at all. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, especially when you're watching movies that are made in other countries, because you're watching a movie made with a different sensibility yeah. and a different style and a different way of making films. And it's just like, if you just watch everything the same way, you're not, you're just cheating yourself. Mm-hmm. And I guess the bigger point is like, you know, you can't tell how people the fucking, you know, react to a movie. Like, I feel like if people are laughing their asses off to Nightmare City or Burial Ground, that's appropriate because those movies are fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You you cannot sell them as fucking serious, like, horror movies. And I'm pretty sure the filmmakers, like, b- because of the budget and because of, like, the constraints of making it, they did shit because it's like, fuck it, I don't care. You know, and I'm not saying like they're being lazy or filmmakers is like sometimes like they're just embracing the ridiculousness of what they're doing. And it's just like, I got, I got to entertain myself while making it. Yeah. It's like, because like the gonzo stream of consciousness like carries over and like, it's, it's a rewarding experience that way. But then I think about like something like the elephant man, which like, I remember 
years ago, the Egyptian, we did a screening of it, and like there was almost a fight because there was a bunch of people that got drunk, watched the Elephant Man, and started laughing through it. Oh Jesus! Oh, speaking of Jesus, when I was a kid, <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, <laughs> speaking of the homie Jesus, when I was a kid, uh, actually, my my only reference to elephant man film at all is that uh, my family started going to a church when i was like maybe i don't know eight nine whatever the hell and uh and we started hanging out at the the like the preacher of the church house with the with their family like they had two kids or whatever so it was like me and my sisters would go over there and we'd hang out and uh they weren't they had they weren't allowed to have tv at all they watched no tv nothing like they didn't have shit they had they had no video they didn't have nintendo the only fucking thing they had they did have a computer that they basically like weren't allowed to use and then there was like a there was a TV and it was like up in a cabinet like you couldn't get to it and shit with a VCR and there was just one tape and it was the elephant man <laughs> and it was always just weird to me like what the fuck is the elephant man and you know years later I found out but um, yeah that was the only movie that they were allowed to watch and I'm sure they weren't laughing through it yeah or maybe I mean they might not have no choice that might have been I don't know I, I think of other times of like I've seen you know audience reactions that you know weren't meant to be paul thomas anderson famously talked about like boogie nights early screenings where like this is a spoiler for boogie nights so if you haven't seen it, you might want to pause or skip but you've, I, had, you've had enough time to watch you, boogie you, nights. You, yeah you you've had enough fucking time to watch boogie nights at this point so there's a scene it's on new year's and where william macy like has enough of his cheating wife he goes to the car and gets a gun and everyone's laughing and then he goes and shoots his wife and the person she's fucking. And everyone's laughing. And Paul is mortified. It's like, did I do this wrong? And, like, I think his producer was saying, like, no, you didn't do anything wrong. It's just the audience. This is what how the audience, like, chooses to engage with it. Cause, and he's, like, feeling down. And then Macy's character fucking blows his brains out. And the audience shuts the fuck up. That's his exact words. The audience shuts the fuck up. Yeah. So... You know, that that's like basically taking an expectation, taking an audience who think they're really clever and think something's funny mm-hmm. and fucking kicking them in the balls. Yeah. Hell yeah. And I think that's also a brilliant way, too, because like some filmmakers do subvert that expectation. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, he didn't want people laughing to that point. But then, like, the audience paid the price for, like, taking it as a joke. Yeah. Which is a really amazing thing to happen. It I it's just like the way people engage with art now. And it's just like, you can't, again, you can't control it, but it's like, I've gone to plenty of rep screenings over the years. And like, you know, depending on the context, depending on if it's a screening series, depending on who's presenting it or format. I also feel like when you get into bigger films like vertigo or like 2001 or Lawrence Arabia, you start getting what I call like the multiplex crowd. And that's a completely different audience. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this, like, the worst rep audience is nowhere near as bad as the, like, a regular, like, packed house at, a, like, AMC or a fucking Regal or something like that. Yeah, you haven't truly been to war until you, you've seen, you've had two weeks with the Irishman. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm i going to say this. I I like the Irishman as a movie. Love I, I love f- it, actually. That fucking run was awful. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was just the crowd because it was a multiplex crowd. Mm-hmm. Like... There's certain movies they'll come out for, like, It's a Wonderful Life, like, fucking standards or whatever bullshit or whatever. And, like, that crowd is fucking abysmal. 
And like, I, I don't know. Well, I guess because most of the time in multiplexes is like, no one has to deal with it. They're all behind a concession stand. Have you seen the, uh, the video of uh, people filming a rap video in front of avatar for the new avatar? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens at a multiplex. <laughs> yeah. The second, like someone like brings up a phone at a rep screening, it's like, turn off your fucking cell phone. Yeah. Like just thankfully, thankfully. But I also feel like I have a problem with that too. Yeah. Let me let me clarify. I, well, go I, go get someone that works there. Yeah. You don't have to actually scream in the theater, but Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like But also at the multiplex people are just straight up fighting in the theater. Like fist yeah. fights. Yeah. It's, I haven't it's, seen too many like actual I've seen close people yelling, people actually yelling at each other in the theater, but fist fights, I haven't seen those. You, so you, th- thankfully. And I'm gonna tell you the secret to avoiding that in a multiplex, go to a matinee. Yeah. You'll deal with old people who get confused and they'll leave. Because they realize they're not they're in the wrong movie. I I feel like the audience experience is like what's worse, a crowd of people laughing inappropriately at a movie, or someone like getting mad because someone's breaking protocol and then screaming and disrupting the movie. Yeah, it's 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 maybe more disruptive for sure when you're just yelling at someone on their phone. Yeah, I mean the you know? the thing about going to a movie, there's no. I honestly think there's no feeling quite like it. It's the greatest communal experience. Like, I don't fucking go to church. I'm not, you know, in the traditional religious sense religious, but cinema is a church. And, like, you have a communal experience, and you're laughing, you're getting excited, you're getting scared. You know, you're going through all kinds of emotions. And, like, yeah, like a shitty crowd can do that. I re- There was a couple movies I saw at other theaters that, like, the crowd was just, like, being weird or whatever, like, kind of getting into that ironic zone. And what I ended up doing was like, I just kind of like forced myself to put blinders on and just focus on the screen. And I just fucking tuned everyone out. And it wasn't the easiest thing to do, but it's like, you know what? I, I know what experience I want from this movie. I know what I'm going to get. I'm not going to let this audience dictate it for me. And that's the other thing. It's like, you do have control. Obviously, you can choose not to go to rep screenings. Obviously, if they're really being disruptive, you can tell someone in the theater. You know, obviously, you can't control when people laugh. And like that's the thing. We, we, we used to have staff meetings where, like, this would come up and, like, you know, the debate of, like, what do you do? And, like, ultimately, it's like you kind of have – if the communal experience is people going to laugh in a movie, that's what the communal experience is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Right or wrong. Yeah. But but you're you're right in the sense that you can you can control it to some extent uh, in the intro and just kind of setting the tone for the for the evening. Yeah, that that's for sure. But you know sometimes people are gonna laugh. Sometimes people are gonna laugh, and it is what it is. And maybe maybe sometimes we I guess we can acknowledge though that maybe in some sense aside from just respecting the technical aspects of something, sometimes some things that are old it's customs kind of have become ridiculous. Oh yeah. You know, so they have become laughable. Yeah. And you know, it's, but, that's the other thing you have to deal with. Like, and also not that I have a good example or anything, no, but, but it must, it's got to exist. The, the other, <laughs> well, the other thing I think a lot of people also need to think of is like when people are laughing and you feel like they're ironically watching some, something like vertigo or whatever, mm-hmm. there's also a chance that like, even though they're doing that, they come out of liking the movie or loving the movie. Or it becomes a fucking, like, I don't want to say earworm, more of a, like, a it, there's something clicks in them, and it kind of opens their doors to other movies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they might have been an asshole at this particular screening, but their world 
might be open up to film and they might be willing to lead to start engaging and stuff. And that's the other reason, like, I don't want to dismiss, like, mm-hmm. the whether something one's ironically watching or something. Because at the end of the day, like, they might have laughed at, like, some awkward fucking Jerry Stewart shit or whatever. Yeah. But, like, they could go and, like, wow, I kind of like this movie or they can't stop thinking about it. Or then you're like, well, I want to check out more Hitchcock or I want to check out more movies like this. And it's a, it's a gateway. And, you know, as much as, like, I never need to see Lawrence Arabia or 2001 ever fucking again in a theater because mm-hmm. of the amount of times, like, the Cinematech has played them, someone's going to go see it for the first time. And someone's either going to be, like, have, you know, get their mind blown or, like, if they don't, they might choose to start getting interested in films other than what's, like, fed to them on a fucking, you know, a streamer algorithm or whatever. They might take a chance and go see something, you know? If you haven't seen 2001 on on Mushrooms in particular, I don't know what you're doing <laughs> with your life. <laughs> yeah, it, I just, I, I guess I just don't understand how people engage with stuff. Because, like, you know, we were also talking about, like, because we talk a lot about music on this podcast, which probably goes over, like, I don't know what the percentage is. There, I know there's people that come up to me and you and, like, hey, it's cool you talk about, like, such and such punk band or, yeah. you know, whatever. I think I think when I was younger, I was I was made the mistake of thinking that like everybody that was into like metal music was also into horror movies and shit like that. You know what I mean? That it always went hand in hand. But that's not entirely true. It's funny when you talk to people that are just like super into film, but they don't know music at all. I don't know. It's not not funny, but it's just interesting. Well, it, it is interesting because there's people that are like, oh man, like you know, I'm going to use this as an example because I think it's a good example. The Pixies, like wow, I really like the Pixies. What song have you heard? Where's my mind? Where'd you hear at Fight Club? Yeah. And I'm not knocking it because that should be an introduction and like, you know, you should be able to listen to that song and then you should go listen to Doolittle, which is a fucking amazing album. However, there's also people that won't engage past the fact that the song was a movie. Like, you know, I love movie soundtracks. I love when like songs are used really well in movies, but like at the same time, this is again, engagement. It's like, you know, where does your exploring end? You should want to explore music and movies and all that. And I feel like, I think in general, it's just like what I see is like not even gatekeeping in a way, but like self gatekeeping, mm-hmm. like the, the unwillingness to go beyond your comfort zone. Yeah. And like, I watch shit all the time that like, I might not actually like, and I'll take a chance on a band that I might not actually like mm-hmm. because we live in the streaming world having endless access to things like can be overwhelming, but like, it's also opportunity to discover. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just like, I, I guess the bigger point of what we were talking about here is just like, people are going to discover shit. And obviously there's always going to be these things that are on pedestals and people don't like when something's on a pedestal and mm-hmm. it doesn't get the reaction they had to it. But it's also like, you know, you saw vert, like some of these people saw Vertigo in like the eighties when like it was fucking newly remastered or whatever, you know, there's people just seeing it for the first time, like in like in a completely different context and a completely different like world really. And it's like, yeah, it kind of sucks that most people won't willingly like engage with art as the art is mm-hmm. and want to like shove everything under like a modern lens. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like eventually some of these people are going to break that mold. We also just have 
all of cinema from the time Vertigo was made up until fucking yesterday to look at. Yeah. You know? So, and, and if they've only experienced the films that they were going to see at the multiplex as they're growing up, and then they go, I'm going to dip my toes in classic film. I mean, there's a huge you know. fucking gap of difference. Like, right. They grew up in the 2000s or whatever. Yeah. It, you know, and I'm not trying to uh, disparage young people. I, I don't mean it that way. But when we're talking about like the new generation of film goers or, or people that are just, you know, the people that are getting into it, I, I have a feeling that not everyone is, you know, like me and only started giving a fuck in their 40s or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's probably, I, I imagine that most people that are really trying to just, dip their toes in film or whatever the fuck. If you're only seeing vertigo for the first time, you're probably right. I mean, I don't know. I just saw the fucking Godfather not that long ago. I don't know. You know what I mean? I mean, everyone, it's everyone has their own, uh, you know, timeline of when they see things and whatever the fuck. The, the thing about cinephiles is like, and I'm, this is, I've said this before when I talk about like, try and like, you know, get a horror convention crowd to a horror film screening a cinephile and someone goes to film school are completely different. Cause when I went to film school, I'd seen a lot of film yeah. and I was really excited to like, you know, learn. Bef- meaning before you went, you had, yeah. you had already seen a lot of film. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. was like, and I was, I took the opportunity to go to film school, especially film history and like individual classes mm-hmm. to fucking engage with things that I had never seen. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of foreign films and stuff like that, you know, having the opportunity to see Kurosawa for the first time or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff. But then there was also people that would go to film school because they saw Pulp Fiction and they just wanted to make their own version of Pulp Fiction. And their film history started in 1993 or 94 and went from there. The, and, the 90s were exciting. To, I don't, we don't need to bridge it off into this too much, but the 90s were exciting time. And I can, I can definitely understand how a lot of that kind of 90s, like renegade cinema, really influenced the next generation. And that's where they started. You yeah. Know? I mean, it really was just a different time. Coming out of the 80s and the suckage of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, it's like, as much as I show a lot of 80s stuff, there was a lot of garbage me in the 80s. There, mm-hmm. You know, cocaine wasn't as good as it was in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. films on cocaine in the 70s, incredible. Films on cocaine in the 80s, yeah. get a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah. Because when you do too much coke, it's a fucking mess. It never ends well. You're right in what you said. Like, most people that are, you know, dipping their toes in classic films now, they're really young and going to film school or whatever reason they're checking out films. Because, like, you know, I've... I've seen this down the board. I've seen people like, how dare they laugh at fucking hard-boiled John Woo movie? And it's just like, they also don't have like, you know, the respect because, you know, when I first saw hard-boiled, it was available on VHS, but like before that, it was really fucking hard to see. Mm. Like there's people like occasionally those movies would play satellite and people were taping off there or like getting off bootlegs of Laserdisc or like that kind of stuff. Almost like you had to work so hard to see it that by the time you got there, you couldn't laugh at it. Well, no, (laughs) because you appreciated the opportunity to see it. And like, I think access also has a play in here when stuff is like, I mean, I feel like if studios would be more willing to like drop some more classics on the streaming platforms and made them available for people to see whether they like it or not, it changes the thing because like, I I just feel like you're not losing any money. You know, I would like, there's fucking tons of fucking terrible goddamn movies on every streaming platform. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that, you know, specifically that Paramount has this and this and they don't have it up or HBO owns this and they don't have it up. Yeah. That's for sure. Across the board, there's a lot. I mean, they'll occasionally have stuff up, but it's like, you know, there's lots of different movies and there's like, 
when you own a classic library and you don't do anything with it, mm-hmm. like that's like, like I'm, I I'm I am I am genuinely curious how that works if they if they own the rights to something and it's just not on their streaming platform. What what could the reasons be behind it aside from they don't want to take up bandwidth of something else that they think is going to be more popular? I mean, going to sell more ad revenue. Yeah, that's, see, that's what I don't understand because I feel like I look at like Warner Brothers because the Warner Brothers owns all the MGM titles from like 1980 to the beginning of MGM on top of they have a hell of a library. Mm-hmm. And like I know they drop stuff on there occasionally like Clute will be on fucking like, why HBO the, Max. Like, why not have every fucking thing you own available? Period. Well, well, that's the other thing. It's because like, you know, if you make things hard to get to. That's when like piracy becomes a big thing, mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. And but a lot of these people aren't pirating like classic movies. They're probably pirating stuff on the streaming service that they're not willing to pay for. Yeah, it's just how it is. But I, I'm just saying, like you know, I do see streamers put up stuff, but it's like you know weird. You know, like I guess Hulu, which is owned by Disney or whatever, now would put up Die Hard for Christmas or something like that. But like, there's a whole fucking you know, archive of shit that like, just put a couple titles up, just see how they do. Like, just give shit a chance. Like, you know, obviously not a lot of people are going to engage with Zardoz, but if you put it up there, like someone would be like, Oh shit, Zardoz is on streaming. All it takes is like the right person that like can say, I I don't mind picking Zardoz. It's a fucking weird movie, but like just something like that. Yeah. And you know, just I, I feel like just the access to stuff and I feel like the lack of access to like classic cinema. So when like people just hear it talked about and like the other thing is like if you hear something that's talked about and everyone's like, well, they could buy the Blu-ray. Not, not everyone's a fucking physical media collector. Mm-hmm. And also because video stores, I know they still exist, aren't really a strong suit. And the people that go to video stores are already fucking cinephiles. They're not really bringing in a new audience. They're not tapping into that audience that whatever's curated on a streaming service is all they're going to engage with. So if the streaming services acted more as an archive, yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that would be, I mean, obviously that would be incredible. And I, I, I don't think there's any reason not to, cause like they have HD masters. Cause like a lot of that stuff will play on HBO or whatever fucking whoever owns it. Because they're making masters for Blu-rays, they're making masters for DCPs. It's not that far off. Yeah, like is there any benefit to them, you know, uh, Blu-ray sales-wise, to keep something off of the streaming platform? Like, do they really? No. Is that a strategic move? Do you think for any of the studios? No, because like, the because that market is it's not dead, but it's not as strong. Like. You know, as much as people talk about, like, you know, boutique labels like Criterion, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, et cetera, et cetera, like, that's a very specific demographic, you know? Mm -hmm. Your average fucking, like, person is not buying, like, a Blu-ray. Yeah. They're still buying DVDs if they're buying anything. But, like, because of what streaming has done, DVD sales are down. Right. Because there's, I think, there's an interview with Matt Damon on Hot Ones, of all things. Mm -hmm. And they asked him about, like, you know, why, you know, kind of like more like the mid-range art house movie doesn't exist anymore. Right. And he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I might not get this exact. But, like, what he ended up saying is, like, at the time, the studio would take a chance on a $50 million 
like kind of art house movie. And it might be a surprise hit. It might get nominated for some awards. But at the end of the day, it would sell a shit ton of DVDs. Mm-hmm. And most things would like at least break even, if not make money in the end. Because the way streaming is and because like the rental market and people buying stuff is now very, very narrow margin, when you don't have that money to recoup, you're taking less chances, which is also why the kind of movies that get made now. And obviously you have distributors like Neon or A24 and like, you know, Focus, which is like an offshoot of like, you know, Universal, whatever. Like you still have art house brands, but like those, they're not... They're not fucking cranking them out like they used to. Yeah. And in fact, like they're very strategic. And a lot of them, if they're not going to do well, they'll just go straight to streaming. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. It's like, you know, a lot of the like Oscar contenders, you know, there's a good portion of people that don't ever fucking see those movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, I know we live in LA and like all those things will play here, but like, you know, something like Tar probably isn't. I mean, yeah, that's not on most people's radar. Ban- Banshees of Isherin is not on most people's radar. Like the shit that's just that's just normal. That's just kind of normal to us. Yeah, yeah. but like if they get nominated, then they get mm-hmm. a second life. But like Oscars and all that, it's a it's a marketing game. It's like you know they have like I think ten movies up for like best picture or whatever, and then people will go see what won the Oscar, and then most people complain about it because like it's usually something that like isn't really a traditional audience movie or like it's something hard to gate. You know, it's like, it's weird when you get something kind of commercial that wins an Oscar. Like, right. Like, uh, did, uh, did everyone go out and did everyone figure out a way to see parasite a couple of years ago? Once that, when that won oh, all yeah. those awards and then what did, you know, what did the average like non, you know, cinephile, think of something like that you know? i mean it it won an oscar people went and saw it i think people complained because of a subtitle because you know yeah. that's just gonna be yeah i forget that people just are like that that that's how people are that, it's, yeah it's fine you, and then and then it hit hulu just i think right as the pandemic was starting and all that so it's like you know that's the only time but like but something something like that can be a gateway to check know, it out yeah like, you know, people now seeing like decision to leave and stuff like that. Yeah, like Parasite should open the door to more Korea, Korean cinema. Just like mm-hmm. RRR is going to probably open door to more like you know Tollywood, Bollywood, and that kind of stuff, yeah. which I think is cool because I feel like you know these are you know these are long established like you know countries that have a very specific kind of like film they make. I'm not saying yeah. they all make the same exact thing, but like you know like it's kind of cool that people are now engaging with like an action movie musical, you know, I know we've kind of talked about, it's like people dancing in the aisles for like RRR. And like, I, that's, you know, I don't know how I think about it because I haven't seen RRR in a theater and I'm not going to knock it. Did you actually see it at all? I haven't seen it at all yet, but like I've seen enough of the people dancing at the end or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like, the thing is, it's like, to me on the outside looking in, I'm like, I don't know what I think about this, but then, Going back to what I said earlier, that's part of that communal experience. Mm-hmm. The communal ex- experience is that people are so overjoyed and so fucking, like, taken by this movie that, like, when that fucking song hits, mm-hmm. people are fucking getting up and dancing in front of the screen. Yeah. And that's cool, too. Like, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, because, like, you know, there's part of me that's like, ah, that's a little much. But then, like, is that any different than, like, cheering 
during big action scene in a fucking like Chuck Norris or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis movie. Right, right, right. It's just the expression of like enjoying the cinema. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from a pure place and not just like, you know, it's not but, ironic. But, but also ju- just like the but just like the people that were talking about earlier that are laughing though, right? It's like some of that is just contagious. Yeah. Some of it's performative, some of it's genuine. Yeah. Some I, of it's I'm, um, you know, it's it's all those things. And like that's part of the communal experience. And like no rep screening is going to ever be exactly the same. And I sometimes say that for movies. It's like, you know, when you play a 35 millimeter print, the next time it plays, it's going to be a completely different film because it can be scratched. Mm-hmm. You know, some damage could happen. Lots of things can happen. Like it's getting older. Like if it's a film that's fading, it could be a little bit more red, like that kind of stuff. So every, at least film experience, actually any Anytime you screen a movie, it's a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've seen some movies multiple times in the theater. I've seen, like, things play like gangbusters one time and then fall flat. Yeah. And it, it had a lot of contributing factors to it. So, I know we just kind of went on a tangent here, the kind of kick off a podcast where we're talking about what we're screening. But I, I think it's a valuable thing to talk about is, like, you know... My end thing is there's no right or wrong way to engage with a movie. There's a preferred way. There's a preferred way you would like to see a movie with a crowd, just like I have a preferred way to see it with a crowd. But, like, film is a communal experience, and, like, you're right. Sometimes if someone starts laughing at something because they're uncomfortable or maybe they think they're above it, it becomes contagious. But that doesn't mean the end result is that they think the movie is this big fucking joke. Maybe their takeaway is, like, yeah, they're laughing at something that may come off as dated or laughing at something very inappropriate. But like I when I go to see a film, I'm hoping that myself included that when we're all leaving, we all feel like our fucking day is ruined. Well, yeah. You know, that's how I like to see a movie. Well, I but, mean, so if people are laughing, that's not a good time. That's not a good time for me. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you can I, se- you I go se- to the cinema to get my day ruined. I love it. Well, send that vertigo audience to fucking irreversible because I think it's getting ready to have a re-release soon. Cool. Yeah, they're. I I I see that I've seen some talk lately, and I, I already own the uh, the Blu-ray here, but that they're gonna do the straight cut. They're gonna, uh, they're gonna the re- domestic version. They're gonna do the straight cut, and they're gonna do the regular version. I think. When I was in Denver, they played a trailer for it. Yeah. Oh, and you know, kind of played a trailer for the straight cut. Yeah, for the straight mm-hmm. cut. But speaking of communal experience, I kind of want to talk about this because I just did autopsy, like, I guess last week. We're still in January as we're recording this, and I'm going to be doing Death Laid Egg tomorrow. And I'm going to be flying to Chicago to introduce Tightrope at the Music Box with William Morris. Shout out, Will. And for, you know, January Jail stuff. So I had Barry Primus show up to intro and talk about the movie. And... Barry wasn't really a fan of the movie. Like he, he's like, I got stories about how weird this fucking whole process was. <laughs> and like, cool. so what happened during the Q and a, he was, he was talking about all the weird things. Like I didn't realize I was a formula one fucking race, dri- race car driver who became a priest in this movie, that kind of shit. And like, he's just talking about ridiculous. There's a scene. It's like, well, how was I supposed to find the guy? And he's like, the director told me instinct. Like, <laughs> and he was just kind of like, for those of you who don't know how Italian films are made, and this is everything from Fellini to Argento to Fulci to fucking even Burial Ground, they don't shoot sync sound. They just they just don't. 
And it's a lot of it has to do with like a lot of international cast. And depending on how they have people run their lines in the movie, sometimes they're doing phonetic English because they're trying to get into an English market. Sometimes they just everyone just speaks their native language. So you have one person singing speaking English, and then what they do is they loop things. And like his other complaints, like, ah, oh, it's missing a lot of sound or whatever, you know. And it's like some of it a lot of it just depends on like how much money they put into it after the fact. But what happened during the Q&A is Barry turned the crowd and kind of turned it on them. It's like, why don't you tell me why you like these kind of movies? And I'm kind of glad he did because, like, a bunch of people actually told him, like, sincerely, why they like those movies. Mm-hmm. Which is a great, another form of communal experience. Because then, you know, you're talking to someone who doesn't, you know, someone who's in one of those movies who fucking doesn't get it <laughs> and doesn't understand, like, you know, obviously he's like would rather have been in like a Fellini movie or a Sergio Leone movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then by the time where people were talking genuinely, sincerely, like you're like, you know, I like these movies cause they're crazy, but I think they're interesting. You know, they don't really make them like this anymore. Like I, you know, you know, talk about like, you know, the, the, he's great in the movie, regardless of the fact that like, he probably had no fucking clue what was going on. And like, you know, Mimsy Farmer who, is fucking fantastic. And so is Ray Lovelock. And like, you know, Mimsy Farmer, who's been in a ton of these, you know, jolly films and stuff. You know, I think she said something along the lines of like, I know there's a lot of fans for these movies. I'm just not one of them. Mm-hmm. And, but I think Barry was just trying to get to the core is like why people like these kind of movies. And people actually took the time and did it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to like turn it, turn a Q and A on the audience and like put it on them. It's like, why are you even here? Why do you like this shit? And it was, it was fucking great. And people gave some really good answers. So again, that's communal experience. And like, again, each screening is different. Like if Barry Primus had been there, people would just would have watched autopsy, but because he's there, they had to really think about why they chose to engage with it and why they engage with it. So that's, us talking about engaging with art, as in the cinema arts, a little bit of music and all that. So, yeah, why don't we take a quick commercial break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Killer Obsession for the February lineup for Cinematic Void at the Lost Fuels 3 after these messages. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. C.T. Cobb and the following messages. Cobb Theatres welcomes your suggestions. Our primary concern is your comfort and enjoyment. Thanks for not smoking. It's the law. There's still time to visit our snack bar for popcorn, snacks, ice-cold Coca-Cola, and Diet Coke. Try the Cobster, Jumbo Popcorn, and 64-ounce Coke. Please deposit litter in trash receptacles as you exit the auditorium. The perfect gift for any occasion. Gift certificates are available at the box office. Please don't talk during the movie. Thanks for visiting with us. Buckle up and drive safely. See you next week. And now, sit back. Relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back. We've been talking about the audience experience in a movie theater, so I figured let's talk about some things that we'll be playing 
in the movie theater very soon, at least Lost Feels 3. This is going to be the February lineup for Cinematic Void. And the theme or title I gave it is Killer Obsession. Why Killer Obsession? Because it's, you know, law enforcement that is obsessed with catching a serial killer. So, four movies every Monday at Lost Feels 3. I figure we just kind of break down the lineup and talk about the the why. Now, if you remember from the last podcast, I briefly mentioned there was a different theme of bad love that got vetoed. But at the end of the day, I think this might be a, I don't want to say better lineup, but it's a little fitting that like the last thing that's playing January Giallo is I Know Who Killed Me. And and that's, you know, Neo Giallo, Neo Giallo, Giallo, Jason, whatever. And a lot of these share that. And a couple of these actually played in theaters for their other places during January Giallo, other venues. And this first one actually played Cinema Salem when Kate Lynch did her um, January Giallo double feature there. And it's a, I don't think you've seen this movie, have you? No. It is a really good sleazy kind of like crime movie. It's produced by Roger Corman. It's directed by Kat Shea, who also did the first Poison Ivy and a bunch of other stuff. She, I think she did the new Nancy Drew kind of thing that was on HBO like maybe a year, might be a couple years now because pandemic brain, I don't know what fucking time it is. It is a movie called Stripped to Kill. Stripped to Kill. Good Lord, who do you have to blow to get an air conditioner around here? Hey. I think Killer just peed on my bra. You go on next. I don't have anything to wear. Perfect. She knows what to do with her body and eyes in the smoky zoo. She's a master of lies and she dances for you. You're the only one. Then her body takes flight. She's only having fun. And just for a while, you can deny Maniac is killing strippers. Great. A stripper. How are they going to keep this quiet? Detective Sheehan has the only weapon that can stop him. Her body. And it's more than just going out there and turning them on. It's like something's cutting loose. One woman's fantasy becomes every woman's nightmare. Now, this movie is basically about a cop that goes undercover as a stripper to catch a serial killer that is killing strippers. And which is kind of unique because it's, again, like a lot of those Corman exploitation movies, like it's empowering to women while still exploiting them, if that makes sense. Okay. Like, you know, he made a lot of those like kind of you know, teacher movies and nurse movies in the 70s. And, like, you know, there's a bunch of things. And, like, Roger Corman would give women chances to direct films, like Stephanie Rothman and Cat Shea being, you know, another one. But then give them very exploitive material to work with. Okay. 
So it's like, it's empowering and it's exploitive. You get a little bit of both. Gotcha. Um, is that is that done intentionally? Like, is he is he uh, letting these women direct these films so that he can get away with? Is that purely 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 the reason? Really, though, is he just trying to get away with something um, that he can't if he had directed himself, and then so he just hands it off? Or no, because or what's the purpose behind that? Because he produced plenty of exploitation, sexploitation, that kind of stuff. Okay. Like, like you look at the whole '70s New World catalog. Like every movie's rated R. There's nudity. There's violence. There's all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Okay, so he's just genuinely giving people opportunities. Yeah. And, okay. He's, he's, so I'm sorry to accuse here. I'm just just asking. No, like, but that is a fair question because, like, you know, he's done it a few times. Like Barbara Peters did stuff like you know she did Humanoids from the Deep, although he did kind of take that movie away from her to add insert more violence and nudity but there's amy holden jones who did slumber party massacre like he's done it a few times and you know this is much later i think this is post new world it's um i think new horizon is what the company was by that point and you know it's a really cool film it's really it's well directed it's a great sleazy la movie and hey it's got a cop chasing a serial killer so that is going to be playing on February 6th, which is the first Monday of, well, February 2023. I should have probably thought about that before the words came out of my mouth, but here we are. For the second week in February, we're showing a movie that I'm actually getting ready to fly out to, to host in Chicago at the Music Box with the homie Will Morris, which is Tightrope. found one of the bodies near here. They're getting closer. Closer to what? To me. All I'm asking is to be involved in the investigation, all right? Maybe we could put up some warning posters. Let's say what? Some nuts going around the city strangling women? Yeah, why not? Because we're not sure it's true. All it would do is terrify women all over this city. Well, maybe it should. Do you investigate many sexual crimes? Why? I was wondering if they've had any effect on you. Eastwood. Tightrope. Tightrope is really, is really, 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 it's, I mean, some of those Dirty Harry movies might have moments, but this is the most, like, giallo-jason, American giallo thing Clint Eastwood was in. And it's really interesting because a lot of people think this is a Dirty Harry movie, and it's not. Clint plays completely different. Like, he's like, he's a single dad, keeps picking up stray dogs and taking care of them. And he's also kind of a sex addict. Like, this movie plays off as Clint Eastwood's version of Cruising. And, like, except more straight, because, like, you know, Clint's a cop, like, working in New Orleans, but, like, 
He's picking up hookers. He's definitely hinting at he's had gay experiences in the movie. Get to see his bare ass. It's like, it's a different side of Clint Eastwood. And although he is not credited as the official director, he directed the movie. Oh, really? Okay. The rumor has it that, well, if you know anything about Clint's directing style, it's like, Clint don't like to do a lot of takes. You know, Clint's like, get it done in one. Maybe two if you really need it. And I think the original director or the credit director, Richard Tuggle, wasn't moving at a pace Clint liked. So I think Clint just took it over and started directing it. And it's like, it's a really interesting, really dark movie. It's it's a really different side of Clint. And I'm kind of excited to be able to watch it twice in short succession. And it's on a nice 35mm print coming out of Warner Brothers. And yeah. I hope people check it out. I hope people curve their expectations of what they think a Clint Eastwood cop movie is because this ain't it. This is completely different. So it looks like the uh, the director was actually the writer of the film, so he just went, you're not really a director. I, yeah, I, Clint gave him the hook. Yeah. I mean, the movie also <laughs> stars Clint's actual daughter in it as his daughter in the movie. I thought you were going to say dog. His dog's in the movie. Well, it might be his dogs, but like... And like, you have a... You know, you definitely have like... the. the <laughs> Oh, man. It, it might be his dogs. I don't know. It, I don't know anything <laughs> about Clint Eastwood having dogs or whatever. But, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll just throw it. But, like, it's beautifully shot New Orleans. Has a lot of jazz because, you know, Clint Eastwood. Big jazz head. Okay. Like, he directed the Charlie Parker biopic Bird and stuff oh, like that. And okay. if you watch um, Grant Reno, he sings the jazz song at the end. So, th- there's a lot of Clint's interest in there. But it's just... You know, it, it's really different from him because, like, just how, like, sexual the movie is. Like, it's a real sexual thriller. And the fact that he personally gets down and dirty in it is, like, something else. Like, basically what happens in the movie is the killer starts targeting sex workers that Clint's been with. Okay. So, there's a lot of that. Wears different masks. It's very, very giallo-esque. Like, there's lighting. There's, like, a weird... There's a weird location where I think it's like Mardi Gras floats are like sitting around that Clint's looking around in. It's very well done. And like, I hope people check it out because it's like, it's a really great American Giallo. Cool. And speaking of American Giallo films, we talked about this one, but not in the Giallo adjacent episode. This is going to be what's playing week three, but we actually talked about it as a baseball double hitter. Of course, we're talking about Night Game. For Detective Mike Seeger, America's favorite pastime has just become a matter of life and death. We've got six women killed over two and a half months ago. Want to get this guy? What is that, a cleaver? What are we talking? A butcher here? Some goddamn... What about a hook? You know, like a longshoreman's hook? Every time Barreto pitches and wins, this guy strikes. Now, Mike Seeger has to catch the killer before the killer heads for home. Roy Scheider, Night Game. It's kind of interesting that when we did that baseball episode podcast that it kind of inspired to play both of these movies. We played 
blood games during camp void and that was directly because we did the podcast and like i was going through the lineup and had to change some shit it's like shit fuck it let's show blood games and this one night games just been on my mind it's like i kind of want to see it in the theater i want to see how it plays with the audience because we you know our big consensus with that movie was like it's kind of a perennial like late afternoon tv movie that you just turn on and just get the plot right away by sitting down to it so I was like, eh, it'd probably be digital or whatever. But the distributor Park Circus like, no, we found a print. And I'm like, holy shit. So I'm like really excited to see this fucking movie in a the theater with the audience. Hell yeah. I mean, obviously Roy Scheider's too old for the role, but like, you know, it's got a got a serial killer with a hook for a hand. That shit's fucking crazy. There's some gnarly kills in that movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm really stoked for that. And then closing out February... Showing one of my, I consider one of my all-time favorite movies. And, I don't know, it's, it makes you, I don't know. It's the it's the one movie where, like, I think that it's acceptable to use in a God of Vita. And, of course, I'm talking about Manhunter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sliding door nationwide victims yeah this is will graham of the fbi one killer this is what the subject's teeth look like Have you seen Manhunter before? I mean, the the real answer is no. It's no. Okay. I've kind of seen it. I we, we did it. We did the drive-in. Oh yeah, we should have the drive-in, but I don't. But you know, I I, I don't think it's we're... not the first time I've put it on and not really paid attention. I mean, I no offense to that movie. I I it's on the list. Well, I mean, again, we're showing like so <clears throat> for this lineup, three of the four on thirty-five strip to kill. Like I try to get a film print. There is two options. We went with the first option that turned out that print was missing title cards and wasn't in very good shape. Mm-hmm. And then the other print was at an archive, and we kind of missed the window of getting it out. So that one's DCP. But strip to kill is worth seeing in any format. It's an incredible movie. But the other three are on thirty-five, Manhunter being as well. 
uh, I'm going to recommend you come to see Manhunter. Cool. Is my favorite Thomas Harris adaptation. Like, flat out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I know people love Silence of the Lambs and, you know, Hannibal and whatever, but I just start and stop with fucking Manhunter. Like, straight up. I think the movie's incredible. Directed by Michael Mann. You know, made... Michael Mann was, like, on a hell of a streak for a while. I made Heat and, like, Collateral and, like... Hell, I even like that fucking Miami Vice movie he made. But, you know, Manhunter, I think, was the first appearance of Hannibal Lecter, except Brian Cox plays him. Mm-hmm. It's got William L. Peterson, who, like, feel like should have got more dap for his 80s, like, roles between this and To Live and Die in L.A. And, like, you know, he basically took his Manhunter role and kind of parlayed into CSI. You got Tom Noonan in it, who's, like... The killer, fucking, I mean, this movie's just fucking crazy. And again, there's a fucking needle drop for Inigai the Vita that's fucking incredible in this movie. I I do know the end scene. Yeah, yeah. I, we've probably talked but about so, it. Well, well, when we when when we screened that at the drive-in, uh, which is today's the last day for the drive-in, by the way. Oh yeah, the, we, the day that we're recording this is the last day for the Mission Tiki drive-in. Yeah, so it's kind of bittersweet because like during 2020 when. Beyond Fest and Cinematech started doing those shows like shit that was one of the things that got us out of the house Mm -hmm. and like it was we talked about the communal experience like you can have a communal communal film going experience even in a drive-in like that those shows pulled a lot of people together and like gave people comfort and like you know sense of community when like everyone was like forced to be like six feet or more apart we screened Manhunter we talked through the whole thing, but then at the end, we you made me watch the end with yeah. the Inagata Vita, all that. Dude, so, it is go. one of the greatest fucking sequences. Like, that scene is fucking nuts. There's, like, jump cuts in it, and, like, fucking Tom Noonan walks through a poster of Mars. I know I'm spoiling it for people, but goddammit, like, there's no spoiling Manhunter, because that, that fucking ending is just nuts. Yeah. Dude, when the fucking drums kick in, and he fucking busting through, god, goddammit, just... If you're in L.A. and you haven't seen Manhunter, go see fucking Manhunter at this screening. I think that's going to be the first one that sells out of these four. I think they're all going to do pretty good. I, I think Night Game's going to be the sneaky one. Someone's probably played it rep-wise at some point, but not in recent history. Yeah. And, you know, I hope people also come and check out Tightrope. I actually hope everyone comes out and checks them all out. When I posted this lineup, someone reposted and said, like, Cinematic Boy never misses. I'm like, don't say that shit because then if I have a bad month, it's going to be hard. But like, <laughs> honestly, I think this is one of the, you sold me on tightrope. Yeah. Tight for sure. I, I'm, I'm itching to come out for that one. Yeah. I mean, I think all four are bangers, cool. like straight up bangers. And I'm not saying that because I picked them, but like, you know, some months when you take a theme, it works better than others. And this one just hit on all cylinders. It's a kind of a, a cool down from, uh, from January Giallo, you know, it's kind of a, the, the after party. It, it, it is because there's a lot of giallo adjacent, you know, things in these movies. Actually, all four of them have some of it, some of them more or lesser degree, depending on what it is. But it's also like, you know, you're getting uh, procedural movies. Like, it's like you know, the inner workings because every movie has someone that's obsessed with catching a killer yeah. and going to whatever lengths they have to. And, you know, one has a person going undercover to be a stripper to catch something and they end up falling in love with stripping, you know, <laughs> which is kind of nice. This strip to kill plays right after I know it killed me because that stripper angle yeah. and, you know, kind of throwing back to January jail as we're recording this, I know who killed me actually sold out 
today as of this recording, which I'm super stoked for because like director Chris Sievertson is coming doing a Giallo fashion show. And like, I'm kind of curious what the audience is. And this is going to come back to like, how do you set it up for the audience? Because all month long, I've been just singing the praises that this is my favorite Neo Giallo. And we actually watched it. Cause I usually, when I know I have to do a Q and a pre prep and you're like, dude, let's just fucking watch it and throw it on. And like, there's a lot of great stuff in that movie. Oh yeah. And I know we're getting off talk about February, but like I'm, I'm also happy that someone went on the, I know who killed me Wikipedia page and like noted like cinematic void included in his 2023 January Jello series. And I'm like, whoever did that. Thank you. Very cool. Because like, I would like to have at least a little small part in the reevaluation of this. And I know there's been people singing this movie's praises since it actually came out. But I feel like I think it's time for it to have its like, dare I say, Halloween three moment mm-hmm. where like a movie that people have fucking shit on and maligned for like unfair reasons gets its fucking gets its flowers, so to speak. That I had a fucking blast watching this the other day, dude. I, I'm I'm in love with that movie. You know, it's really it is. It is. It's really it's really great for a lot of fucking reasons. And it is. It's I don't I don't know if this podcast is gonna come out before that actually screens I'm not sure but but and and it's already sold out we're not talking to anybody into buying tickets but goddamn bro it's some of those it's brutal dude it's, yeah it's fucked up some of it's fucked up yeah and I also think it's the perfect transition movie from January Giallo to February's lineup of killer obsession oh yeah it, it really is it really really is you're absolutely right yeah and I don't know man it's I know it's you know, early in 2023, but like, I, I'm going to toot my own horn. Fuck it. This is a Mac boy podcast. I can do that. I, I think like the, the, the first two months I've like put together have been some of my favorite shit. You know, this, I'll say kind of talking about January Giallo this year, like it is outsold overall better than last year's lineup in the Lost Fields three. And there's some contributing factors, but like, you know, I, it just people were coming out. I'm glad people were taking chances because, like, you know, not a lot of people have seen a lizard in a woman's skin. And I knew that was going to sell out because of the rarity of the print. But I knew I, I knew who killed me was going to be the sneaky one, the one bringing it back to the uh, bringing it back to the original conversation here. Uh, I know who I know who killed me is going to be a great experiment in, uh, you know the the influence that you can have on the screening and can you know can will will this crowd take that film more seriously now and and not there's some ridiculous things oh, there's the, some you know we laughed at maybe yeah. some non comedic moments the other night but all in all I, dude it's so good though it's so good and yeah some of it is actually it's funny it's go, it's goofy it's different for yeah I don't know I I it's I, a, I, it's, it, it's quirked up. <laughs> yeah well the thing is it's like the movie was made how it was supposed to be made yeah. and i think like this screening coming up is like people are coming into it excited to see it cool not excited to come fucking mock it yeah great i think people are going to come in willing to engage with it on the terms of like, like this is a like American- either like oh i'm stoked to see this for the first time or i'm stoked to see this again and potentially under a new lens yeah i the the mix the and, mix, and just people that actually yeah. know that it's great. 
Well, the, the, it's a good mix of people because I've I've actually talked to people like outright. It's like, dude, I remember when I like was a projectionist. Andrew Furtado who works for Severn. Mm-hmm. He called me. He's like, dude, I'm so excited you're playing this because I remember working at a movie theater and playing it and like doing when we did the tech check on running it. And he's like, I was just like, this movie's gonna be huge. And then no one showed up. <laughs> Fuck. Because he's like, it's just so insane. It's like it's incredible that like a studio greenlit this, mm-hmm. which kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. Just like studios taking chances on stuff and like this was pre-streaming area like obviously like Lindsay lohan being attached to i know killed me gives it extra little cachet but then what was happening to her at the time kind of like skewed that you know but i do think the film is genuinely a fucking great film and it's definitely a great example of american giallo and yeah there's some modern quirks in it but you know at this point i've we, I think we mentioned on the podcast that Chris has been coming to the screenings and like I've talked to him a little bit about like each thing I've been showing along the way. So I'm actually really excited to sit down and like, you know, talk about like the nuts and bolts of this. Obviously, people are going to want to know about the Lizzie Lohan shit, but like I'm less interested in that because I think she's really great in it. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in like influences putting them together because the movie's just so con- well constructed. And I think when we were doing the research, we're talking through as we're watching it. I mean, obviously we're watching it, but we're also talking in terms of like, holy shit, check this out. Look at that. It's just like we, you know, we we noticed some things and then we kind of looked it up and kind of confirmed it. It's like, okay, that's cool because there's definitely Twin Peaks vibes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I know we're now not talking about the February lineup, but I think it's, it. I know who killed me is the transition that got us the killer obsession, which I think is like, I don't think I've done a lineup a January Giallo lineup that flowed so seamlessly into the next month. Yeah. And that's also coming out from having done a year of like weekly screenings. And I don't think March is going to, March is going to probably shift gears and it probably should. Cause then if you're doing the same thing, you're just showing a similar thing every week. It's not going to work the same, but I think coming out of January Giallo and showing some fucking good, like serial killer, like cop procedural, like thrillers is it's a good switch. And for those still kind of aching for, like, I want more of that Giallo goodness, you're going to get a little taste of it still. A little January Giallo leftovers in February. That is the lineup coming to the Lost Fields 3 in February for Cinematic Void. We're going to take one last break, but when we return, it's going to be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. The management of this theater, in cooperation with the Tennessee State Fire Marshal's office, requests that you take a moment to look around the theater and familiarize yourself with the location of all emergency exits, the aisleways in which you entered, and the passageways designated by the illuminated emergency exit signs, visible to you at either the right or left of the forward section, have been checked and are clear exits from the building in the event of an emergency. Thank you for your time and attention. Welcome back. It's now time for the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. Now, normally we have a little bit more of a gap between us, so this is, this is, do we just record like once a week now? Yeah. Wow. Wow. We're getting, getting back in the swing of things, but all right, Nick, I know it's not been that long. Why don't you tell me what you've been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right. So after our last podcast where we talked about the films of Dario Argento, uh, specifically Tenebrae and Deep Red, 
Uh, you had mentioned the Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds book by Maitland McDonough. Uh, so I bought that uh, when I was when I was editing the podcast. I heard you say it again, and I was like, "Oh fuck, let me see." And I and I saw the cover, and the the cover of this uh, specific edition is uh, from when the scene in Suspiria where she climbs into like the basement window and falls into the pit of um, fucking uh, razor bar- wire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the cover of this book, which has also been like the, um, like the gatefold of the, the LP of yeah. the, uh, the soundtrack. Um, but just like, just, this is the best, one of the best parts of the film. Um, but just like, the cover was so incredible and you had recommended it during that, the uh, podcast. So I just grabbed it and I've been, I've been skimming through that a little bit. Uh, so that's my read uh watch um i don't know i can't even remember when we did the podcast it was last week yeah i don't know i've been on a big uh david mamet kick so i've been watching a bunch of his stuff that, uh that he both uh he everything that he wrote but then uh only some of it he directed but like uh state and maine uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which I didn't know that the the, uh, the phrase coffee coffee is for closers. I didn't realize that was from that <laughs> film. It was just like a weird kind of like a meme phrase I've kind of heard around for years. You know, had that, no clue. That movie is still incredible, and it's also even more cre- incredible when you think there's two actors that got canceled for completely different reasons yeah. in that movie. Yeah, totally. And I'm talking about Baldwin, and Kevin Spacey, mm-hmm. which is just insanity. Yeah, and then plus, obviously, just you know. Uh, not everyone loves David Mamet's politics, for that matter. Whatever he's not exactly uh, yeah, he's, well, he's not exactly welcomed these days. Yeah, he kind of just. This has only been like maybe the last like say five years. He took like he might have been always conservative, but he took he the, took a major sharp turn. He, he took the hard yeah. right. <laughs> but uh, recently, I watched Oleana, Satan, Maine, Glenn Gary, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, Spartan. Wag the dog, the verdict, American Buffalo. Like I straight up went in, and we've been we like podcasted like three days ago. <laughs> so, so I don't know, but I'm kind of making it a point this year to not only uh, not only go through like filmographies like that, but just to be more of a completist and like check off the the stuff like you know just check some of the boxes off of stuff that i haven't seen that it's like oh fucking i've seen every kubrick except for fucking barry linden like i need to make sure i've i see barry linden this year that's that's how i've decided that i'm watching film this year like i want to got the complete filmography going on damn are you gonna are you gonna rewatch edmund because i know we talked about this yeah and like i said I, i didn't really i didn't love it but uh and I, you know, I watched it because it was Stuart Gordon. And actually, uh, in one of the David Mamet interviews that I listened to recently, he was talking about that Stuart Gordon was originally, uh, uh, he originally was directing plays in Chicago, and that's how they met. I, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, there's the organic theater. That's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, that Stuart Gordon started directing, like, pretty transgressive and, like, uh, you know, theater in Chicago. And, like, he did a lot of Mamet plays, and, like, him working there was kind of what led to him doing Reanimator. So it's you know I was I'm gonna just hijack it for a second. Yeah, just say Late era Stuart Gordon is some of the best like late career fucking filmmaking from any genre director because yeah. it just went off the fucking hinges. Edmund is you know you might not like liked it back then, but I think you'll like it a lot more now. Edmund's a fucking incredible movie. Like King of Spiders, another late Stuart Gordon, fucking just nasty. It's a sick one, yeah. And stuck. Like, his late run is like, you know, I can't think of another genre filmmaker that had, like, a resurgence in a way where, like, they were just freeing because they were doing, yeah. like... 
His Masters of Horror was one of the best ones. Oh yeah, both of them he did. The um, I know there's the Edgar Allan Poe one he did with mm-hmm. um, Jeffrey Combs. What's the other one? Is it, is it Pelt? No, no, that no, was, no, that no, was no, Argento no. one. Oh, he did. I'm sorry, I I I didn't like the two that he did. Oh, you didn't? No, I'm trying to think who who's the one that uh, but he did the Black Cat and Dreams in the, the Witch, Witch House. House, and I didn't I didn't love either of those. Uh, Dreams of the Witch House had the guy that was also in Dagon. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I kind of like both of those, but, like, you know who else? Uh, that new Del Toro show. I guess it's not new now. It mm-hmm. was, like, um, was it Cabinet of Curiosities? Yeah, that's the one. Um, I, what's her name? Who directed Twilight, directed a new version of um, Dreams of the Witch House, which... Oh, okay. Which, I, I think there was a kind of cool creepy witch in it but i didn't really like that episode i think it's just that, one. that's an unadaptable story maybe people it, just leave it alone yeah it's like i you know i know they they took five pages of whatever reanimator was and made an 85 minute movie out of it that's true that is but, very, that is very true and Stewart's usually pretty good at his lovecraft but you know but getting back to like when he just like said fuck it mm-hmm. and just went for it like in that late part of his career like i think it's extraordinary stuff and especially like if you're on the mammoth kick make sure you watch Edmund. that's yeah. the that's the main point i'm trying to make yeah 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 i'm I'm definitely gonna go in on that again um and that's that's what i've been watching uh and listen wise i'm still on the post-rock kick with the like tortoise and all that stuff uh and then just a lot of karate slint uh codeine quiet slow sad it's been it's been raining a lot here yeah it's it's the weather's fucking with me and my like one of my half my face is congested right now which which is winter in la for me like everyone's like i don't know every year i deal with this shit it's like man i just want to live in like a fall climate year round i don't think that exists anywhere but if i could find it where like every if i can find a place where fucking i just see orange leaves year round and it's like you know Gets to maybe 55, 65 degrees. That's where I'm moving. Build me build me a fucking theater that I can screen shit. I want to live in that place. I don't know where it is. If you know where that is, let me know. I'm going to have to retire at some point. So let me know where I'm retiring to. All right. Again, for my read, I ain't read shit. But I'm getting there. I got, I mean, I got rid of a bunch of my books when I just recently moved in. Um. I got nothing but film books, so I guess I could thumb through some of those, but eh, just not just not reading. Still doing a lot of writing, which is not reading, so can't really talk about it because it's not right. Watch and listen. It's rewatch and listen. Um, watch wise, because it's January Giallo, it's still been, you know, watching quite a bit of those. And there's one I want to highlight because I just forgot how incredible the movie is. I always liked it. It's the Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, fuck. It's got Barbara Boucher in it. It's got a fucking absolute goddamn banger of a score by Bruno Nicolai. And, man, it's just, it's good. It's just fucking great. It's directed by Amelia Magali, who also did um, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Both of them kind of like gothic horror giallo films. But, like, fuck. Red Queen Kills Seven Times. One of the essential fucking giallo films. And, like, Ah, goddamn, it's so good. Because we watched I Know Who Killed Me, and, you know, there was a lot of the lynchisms in it. I 
watched some Twin Peaks stuff. I watched the fu- Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Watched it really late at night, which is not a it's not a good late night movie by any stretch of imagination. All those fucking Laura Palmer screams are like, I don't know. It's it's a fucking traumatic movie. Yeah, totally. And then because it's on the Blu-ray, I watched the missing pieces, which are all those deleted extended scenes, and like. Let's see why David cut those. Is that a, the missing pieces on the Criterion? Uh, it's on the Criterion cool. one. So okay. I have to grab that. And then uh, I watched um, the original Twin Peaks pilot just to kind of revisit it. I was going to watch the whole like show again, but I was like, you know what? There's some of those episodes I don't need to revisit. Is it the pilot that's like the hour and a half long? Yeah, the, 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 the Euro cut yep. one or whatever. So I watched that, and then I just skipped to Twin Peaks The Return, and I watched a few of those episodes the other night. God damn, that show's still good. Cool. I, I really need to check out the return, man. I mean, fuck. Well, well, I'll just bring it over. We'll just watch it. Yeah. I can. I'm only four episodes deep, so like. You down to start it over? I'm down to start it over because cool. it's, it's just fucking insane. Like how fucking good it is, and like it'll never happen again. Mostly because a lot of the people since then, a lot of those people are now no longer with us. Yeah. Which is kind of sad, but like I think it, it's an extraordinary. It's like it, def- it pushes what's a miniseries, what's a TV show, and what's a really fucking long 18-hour movie. Yeah. And I don't know. As I was logging in a letterbox, I just logged in it by episode, so it's going to look like I watched it 18 times when it's just... They count as a full runtime. But it's like I feel weird just like clicking it once when I'm watching one episode. So I don't know how to log on a letterbox. Cool. It's weird that certain letterbo- certain shows you can log on letterbox, but other ones you can't like... I think that's also the reason why I didn't watch the other Twin Peaks stuff because I couldn't log it. Yeah, it's been a lot of Well, I, it's weird because it's like newer TV shows. Like, there's shit on Netflix. There are clearly eight individual episodes that they'll put as like one thing. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. I, I I don't just. It, it seems kind of random, but yes, it's there's plenty of things that are that I definitely have logged. You know, you can log the rehearsal. You can log. There's plenty of television shows. I was going to see if Stranger Things was on there. Actually, Stranger Things isn't, which is kind of shocking. I, I was just going to pull it up just as an example. I'm like, oh, well, the example is going to pull up isn't on there. So it, it seems kind of arbitrary. I wonder if it's like if it's one director, one singular vision, that's why it is. I don't know. That I, I don't have any other reasoning for it. But like, yeah, Twin Peaks, the Red Queen kills sometimes. I watched a couple out of... um. Movies from the Vinegar Syndrome Homegrown Horror Volume 2. I watched kind of a weird, I don't know how you would, kind of like supernatural kind of horror movie called Hanging Heart. I don't know if I liked it, didn't hate it, just kind of in between. Then I watched the one called Dead Girls, which, again, I think there's some good stuff in it. Don't know, love it, don't like, hate it, I don't know. It's like a lot of regional horror stuff. It's like you either grabs onto you or not. There's... The third movie in the set I've actually seen called Moonstalker, which I think I played... I don't think. I know I played it back in on the virtual camp void I did during the pandemic, during the Cinematis movie, and that triple feature. And kind of like that. And I kind of want to revisit it as a good-looking version. So that's on the plate. Listen-wise, it's eh, still, still stuck on that Songs for the Willow, One Step Closer EP. But some other things came out. A new song by Liars Academy. I'm being followed, which is quite a little banger. A couple of things you sent my way, including um, Teenage Wrist, Earth is a Black Hole, specifically the song Wasting Time. Jesus fucking Christ, dude. 
Those, those guys can write a fucking song, man. That it's a song and a fucking half. Uh, other things I've listened to. Um, another new song from Narrowhead. They have an album coming out called Moments of Clarity, and I guess they keep dropping tracks until the whole album comes out. Uh, another band you hit me to, which been around for a while, but I've just missed because I don't know. You're you're my you're my music plug, as they say. Okay, what's this one? It's Basement, Color Me, and Kindness. Because the, the other day we were watching like different bands on YouTube, like kind of newer, like you know, New Gaze and like indie rock and like that kind of stuff. And we were you know commenting on some of like some of the bands were really lacking like stage presence yeah. and performance where the record sounds so good. And then you watch them live. It's like, yeah, musically it's there. It's just like, it doesn't, the album doesn't translate to the live, but then you're like, check this out. And his band basement, like, Holy shit. Yeah. Like, you ha- like not even heard the studio version yet, but the live sounds so complete. It's yeah. Like, goddamn. Yeah. It was fucking Jesus Christ. Um, what, there's a couple other things I've been listening to because, I actually listened to this today after watch movie was um Bruno Nicola, Nicolai's um soundtrack to um Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Fucking just the earworm of a fucking Giallo soundtrack. And because just saw Autopsy, been listening to Enyer McConey's score to Autopsy. So another banger of a Giallo soundtrack. That one a little more avant garde because that was Morricone kind of shifted between his like really weird avant garde scores and then like kind of more traditional stuff. Like I, I know everyone loves the spaghetti westerns, but I think his giallo period is some of his yeah. finest work. Cool. And you know, from the Argento Animal trilogy through things like you know, you know, Autopsy and shit, he did a Lizard and Women's Skin, which is another fucking banger of a soundtrack. So you know. Love those Morricone Giallo soundtracks. But that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. If you're in L.A. and you're looking for a killer February, make sure you check out Killer Obsession over at Lost Fuels 3. And, you know, give us some feedback. Hit us up on the socials. Tell us what you think about the February lineup. Tell us what you think about January Giallo. Or maybe just tell us what you think about the podcast in general. You know, feedback is good. Otherwise, we're doing this in, you know, kind of a void so to speak and speaking of the void until next time see you in the void hello i'm john waters and i'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you that smoke anyway, it gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm.